Ecclesiastes chapter 5, and we're going to look just at the first seven verses. You know, back in verse 1 of Ecclesiastes, the author, presumably Solomon, called himself a preacher. Uh, but you might have noticed, if you're paying attention, that he hasn't yet done what most preachers do. That is, he hasn't told us what we should do. There have been no direct commands yet in the book of Ecclesiastes. There's been an awful lot of evaluation, a lot of him looking at the world around him and giving you his assessment of what things are like in life under the sun. But he hasn't yet said, here's what you ought to do about it. Today, that changes. Today, Solomon begins to speak like a preacher, and uh, you can tell that by the fact that he is concerned in today's uh, passage by what God's people do in church. Uh, and so we're going to see this today in Ecclesiastes chapter 5 uh, as an encouragement, an admonition uh, to be on our best behavior in worship. Uh, but it goes a little bit deeper than that. So we're going to see this today, Ecclesiastes 5. Uh, verses 1 to 7. Please join me in prayer before we go to the Lord, uh, and uh, let's seek his blessing on our study together. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, our God, we thank you that you are the one who gathers your people. When we come together, we come to hear your word, and you are the one who speaks to us. You speak to us through your living word, and you speak to us through your Holy Spirit dwelling in our hearts. You enable us to cry out and to speak to you. You are the one who leads us by the promises of your gospel to live as your people in the world. And so we pray uh, that you would make that to happen in our lives, even as we come and we read your word today. We pray that you would bless those who hear, bless us with love for you and obedience to you, bless us with a view of Jesus Christ the great obedient one who laid down his life as a sacrifice for sinners. Help us to rejoice in Christ our Savior. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll hear now God's word as we find it in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 1 to 7. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven, and you are on earth, therefore let your words be few. For a dream comes with much business, and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay in paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It's better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? Where dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. Thus far the reading of God's holy an inerrant word. May he add a blessing as we study it together today. Uh, if there is uh, any passage in Scripture that could maybe, possibly, almost make a Presbyterian preach a shorter sermon, uh, <laughs> this is it. God is in heaven, you are on earth, let your words be few. Well, this is uh, a passage calling us to restraint calls us to humility 
regarding what we say in God's presence. Actually, this is about a lot more than what we say. It's also about how we hear and how we listen to the Lord. It's about how our lives align with what we profess about our faith. These verses are about taking our God and taking his worship seriously. During college, I interned at a local church. It wasn't a PCA church. Uh, And during uh, one Sunday service, the congregation was celebrating what they were calling Youth Sunday. And so as a part of their celebration during the worship service, they had the youth pastor, not me, they had the youth pastor dress as a clown. They had him ride a Segway scooter down the center aisle with a parade of youth behind him. It was, without a doubt, the stupidest thing I have ever seen in a worship service. Things like that happen all the time. You've probably seen those videos of the megachurch pastors who ride into the service on their Harley because they're kicking off a new series on biblical masculinity and they want to look the part. You've maybe seen, as Douglas O'Donnell points out, those churches where the funny video clips season the sermonette. You've seen the places where the worshipers bounce a beach ball around the, the sanctuary while the worship band plays. Actually, it's easy for us, uh, us uh, curmudgeonly Presbyterians, it's easy for us to look out and to see those very obvious glaring ways that the world trivializes worship. Well, these verses are about something much more subtle than all that. These verses are about something that could happen even here in a conservative church, without a video screen. Derek Kidner says that Ecclesiastes 5 is about the well-meaning person who likes a good sing, who turns up cheerfully enough to church, but who listens with half an ear, who never quite gets around to what he's volunteered to do for God. Solomon says it's emptiness. It's vanity. It's just one more puff of smoke dissolving into the air. And the only remedy for vanity in our worship is the wisdom that comes with the fear of the Lord. That's where Solomon is pushing us today. He wants us to understand that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of worship. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of worship. And when we understand that, it will change the way we approach God. Specifically, it will change the words that we speak. It will change the promises that we make. That's how we're going to divide our passage today, looking at the words we speak in worship and the promises that we make. Look first at verse 1. Guard your steps when you come to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. In seminary, Sarah and I had some friends who were particularly good at making me feel very selfish every time we hung out with them. It's probably not very hard to do. But they were really good at it because they were really good at getting other people to talk about themselves and and listening as though they really wanted to hear what you had to say. You know those sorts of people. They, They draw you into the conversation. They're always deflecting to whatever your experience or whatever your viewpoint is. They're full of questions. They're full of caring. They're full of a way of listening that communicates that they care about your viewpoint. And every time we left their apartment, I would 
suddenly realize that I just spent the last two hours prattling on about myself. And I would vow that next time it would be better. Next time we were with the Shirley's, I would get them to talk about themselves. But they were such good listeners. On the other hand, you probably have a friend, and come to think of it, it might be me, uh, who likes nothing more than to talk about themselves. Their viewpoint, their history, their problems, their experiences, whatever is going on with them is the most important thing that's going on anywhere, and Solomon is warning us against coming into worship with that perspective. Now, things were different in worship in, in Solomon's day. In some ways, worship was more participatory then than it is now, because every family, every head of household at least, would bring their offering into the service. There was a contribution to be made. They would lay down their lamb. They would lay down their grain before the priest. And, and in that participation, in that offering, sometimes if you're not careful about what's going on in your heart, you can shift the focus of what's happening. You can begin to think that worship really is about what you bring to the table or what you bring to the altar. You can stop focusing so much on what God is doing for his people, what he's saying to his people, and you can begin to focus on what you're doing for your God, what you're saying about your faith and about your life of religious devotion. That's the sacrifice of fools that Solomon talks about. It's worship that becomes a performance that's focused on our own religious accomplishments. Or it's worship that is focused on our own felt needs. This is the consumer culture that you sometimes hear about in the American church, the way that we walk into a congregation and we evaluate it based on how it makes us feel, whether it ticks all of our boxes. Does this church offer the programs that I want? Do they play the music that I like? Does the pastor have a knack for making the Bible seem relevant to my particular situation and life? And even if we never say a word about it out loud, it's really all a way of speaking about ourselves more than it is of listening to God. No matter how you slice it, both of those uh, issues, they're, they're really, the basic problem is, is worshiping with a first-person perspective. That worship becomes something we do rather than something God enables. That praise becomes something that we offer rather than something God has commanded. That sermons become something that we evaluate rather than a way that God speaks to us. We've been praying for Rick Lentz this week. Our first pastor back in 1994 was called as the pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church. And he has uh, a fondness for telling us, for saying that we don't exegete Scripture Scripture exegetes us, right? God's word is God's tool to diagnose the needs and the faults that we would never see in ourselves otherwise. And so what we need, what Solomon is telling us to do, is to come to the Lord and worship with the humility to be hearers rather than speakers first. We should come allowing the Lord and allowing his word to set our agenda. What programs do we need? What preaching do we like? What music suits our tastes? Oh, but do we come to be hearers? And when God is speaking to us, our approach to worship should all also respond appropriately. Verse 2. Be not rash with your mouth. Nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven, and you are on earth. 
therefore let your words be few. Now Solomon is speaking about the words that our hearts say to God, and that is an indication that he's speaking in the realm of prayer. What did we say today? Well, we, we asked, well, what is prayer? Well, prayer is an offering up of the desires of our heart unto God for, for things agreeable to his will, in the name of Christ. Well, what do we offer to the Lord? What do our hearts speak before God? He's talking about prayer, and that means we need to understand that in verse 2, Solomon is not so much war- warning us against praying too long as he's warning us against praying too loosely. There are times, actually, when long prayers are appropriate, when they're necessary. Psalm 86, David prayed, Be gracious to me, O Lord, for to you do I cry all the day. All day long, his his heart is pouring out petition to the Lord. Jesus went out, and the night before he chose his 12 disciples, and Luke tells us that he went out to the mountain to pray, and he continued all night in prayer to God. There are moments when hours of prayer are appropriate. And they're appropriate when our hearts are so burdened or so full of joy that what we need to do is just pour them out before the Lord like a drink offering. There are other times when our prayer comes not from our burdens, but from our vanity. Sometimes we pray because we are angry and we just want somebody we can complain to. Sometimes we pray because somebody else is listening and now it's our turn in the prayer circle. Sometimes there are prayers that we pray and there are songs that we sing because it's just the next thing in the bulletin. And so we mouth the words and our minds are elsewhere and according as uh, as one of our corporate confessions says, prayers have been uttered from a prayerless heart. Praise has often been praiseless sound. There are prayers that we pray that are really just about us. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One of them said, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like other men. Adulterers, unjust, extortioners, even like this tax collector, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. And if that's our approach in prayer, far better to follow Job, to lay our hand on our mouths and to be silent. Better yet, to follow our Savior. Better to recognize, as he tells us in Matthew chapter 6, verse 8, your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. He's in heaven. You're on earth. He's got it covered, whether you believe it or not. It doesn't mean that we don't pray, because He already knows. It means that if we know that our Father knows what we need, it means we can get rid of our posturing and our anxiety in our prayers. If we know that our Father knows what we need, it means that we don't have to twist God's arm with long, impressive-sounding prayers. Maybe if I heap up empty phrases, the Lord will listen to me. Maybe if I just keep talking long enough, God will hear me. If we know that our Father knows what we need before we ask, well, it means that we don't have to fool ourselves with words that make us look better than we are. Augustine said, remove from your prayer much speaking, not much praying. When we pray, when we praise, our hearts ought to be engaged. Our pride ought to be evicted, otherwise we're just going through the motions. God is not fooled by our motions. 
He's not fooled by our spiritual busyness. He's not fooled by the phrases that we add because others are listening to our prayers. So here's the first lesson on worship. Fear the Lord. Because the fear of the Lord will make us listen to God more than we speak about ourselves. The second lesson is this. The fear of the Lord will make us take our promises to God seriously. Verses 4 to 7, Solomon changes the topic just slightly. He's, He's still dealing with how we approach God in worship, but now he's dealing with the vows that we vow to God. Notice the language. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay in paying it. Verse 5, he says, it's, it's better that you should not vow than you should vow and not pay. He goes on, let not your mouth lead you into sin. These are all warnings. It's a warning against making grand promises to God that we have no intention of keeping whatsoever. Why do we make them? Because they sound good. Because we feel like that's what we should say. Because somebody else is there and listening. In the Hebrew church, in Solomon's day, vows were a more visible part of worship than they are for us. Then they were a solemn promise to make some kind of sacrifice, to to give some kind of offering to the Lord. Often the vows were promises of repayment. So you remember Hannah, who in the temple is praying and asking the Lord for a child, and she vows that, Lord, if you will bless me with a child, I will give him back to you. It's a pious thing. It's a good thing, a good vow that she made. But it's it's a promise of repayment. Other times there are promises of devotion. You think of the Nazarites. They promised not to cut their hair, not to drink alcohol for a year. Why? Because they just wanted to live a life of devotion to the Lord. They wanted to be dedicated to Him in a special, different way. And so there are good vows, and there are rash vows. There are wise vows, there are foolish vows. Think of the promise that Jephthah made that cost him the life of his daughter when he returned from the battle that he won. All kinds of vows in in the worship of the Old Testament church. But the point in verse 5 is that vows were meant to be voluntary. They were supposed to be the response of a willing heart. They were a public way to declare your free choice to worship the Lord with gladness. And where vows were made and then they were broken, or worse yet, where vows were made with never an intention to keep them. It was nothing more than empty worship. It was idolatry. Is wanting to look good in front of God's people while imagining that God has no idea what's going on inside our hearts, inside our minds. In verse 6, this word, uh, messenger, let not your mouth lead you into sin. Do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. It could be an angel, as, uh, as the footnote indicates, but most likely it, it talks about a priest. Uh, This is the way that some of the Old Testament minor prophets speak about the priest as messengers of God. This is probably a priest, it might be a Levite, and it it was their job perhaps to follow up on the vows that people made in public. They made a a pledge drive, you think, sometimes in church, and you fill out your card and we'll give this to the such and such fund. And and now the priest or the Levite is saying, well, it's it's time to make good on the vows. And verse 6 pictures for us the lame excuses that people make when they make promises to God without thinking about it. Oh, it was, it was a mistake, they say. I didn't realize how much it was going to cost me. I, you know, I said I wanted to serve the Lord, but I spoke too soon. I didn't think it through. I thought I would still have time to take it back later. Sometimes our promises can be about as useless and empty as a daydream. That's what verse 7 is about. 
When dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. Now, in the New Testament church, we sometimes think of vows as this old covenant thing. We have vows of our own, and we have vows often that show up in worship. Every married person in this room has stood and promised before a group of God's people that they will love and support another sinner till death do you part. Right? Every elder, every deacon here at Redeemer has promised, has vowed to adorn the profession of the gospel in their life and to set a worthy example for the church. Every member of Redeemer has promised to support the church and its worship and its work to the best of their ability. Every parent, if you have had your children baptized into the church of God, you have vowed publicly, you've promised to raise your children in the fear and the admonition of the Lord. You've promised to pray with them. You've promised to pray for them. You've promised to teach them the doctrines of our holy religion. And those are just the vows that we make in public. What about the private promises that we make? What about those desperate prayers that we sometimes make where we think that what we have to do is make a deal with God to get what we think we need from Him? Remember, there are good vows and there are rash vows. There are wise vows and there are foolish vows. What about some of the promises that we make in prayer? Lord, if you let me get this raise, I promise I will double my giving to those missionaries in Africa. Lord, if you bless us with a child, we promise we will have her in church and Sunday school every week of her life. We will read the Bible to her every night. We will be the perfect parents in every possible way conceivable. Lord, if you give me a husband, I will never complain about being lonely or misunderstood or bored ever again. Then again, what about the prayers that that we pray seeking God's blessing, seeking God's goodness, wanting to see more of Him in our life? What about the prayer of conversion? Lord, I want to know you. I want to trust you. I want to walk with you in repentance. Lord, I promise not to trust in anything other than Christ and his righteousness. I'll never turn back to to valuing and viewing my righteousness based on the things that I can do. I want to follow you wholly, Lord. What about the prayer for greater faithfulness? Lord, I want to leave that sin. I promise never to turn back to that temptation. I promise never to go back to that place. I promise never to give in to that attitude. And there are good vows and there are rash vows. There are wise promises to God. There are foolish promises to God. But in all of them, the question is, do we mean what we say? Have we counted the cost of the promises that we make, or do we make vows to the Lord cheaply? Do we do it because it's the next thing in the bulletin? Do we do it because they're a way of feeling like we can contribute to what God is up to? Or are they just another way of trusting in our own strength? You may remember that in the mid-1990s, the the Promise Keepers movement exploded on the scene of American Christianity. They held these massive rallies in arenas arenas and, and stadiums all over the country. They had this vision for revival and reformation through men who were committed to their seven promises of honor and brotherhood and integrity and family and service and unity and obedience. And yet for all their good intentions, the promise keepers revival fizzled. The organization went quiet for about 20 years until in 2018, they appointed a new CEO. They began to work. They began to to plan. They they planned a relaunch event, their first stadium rally 
in decades. It was going to be held at the AT&T Stadium in Arlington, Texas, where the Dallas Cowboys play. And they scheduled it for July 31st, 2020. And like every other event scheduled for the summer of 2020, their relaunch had to be replanned. It's maybe just a small parable. A small parable the way that our own promise-keeping goes. Unforeseen events, unplanned costs, unaccounted for spiritual weakness frustrate our faithfulness. Despite our best intentions, there isn't a single promise we've ever made to God that we are able to fulfill completely, and that's a problem. It's a problem because you notice as you read these words, there's judgment language here. Why should God be angry at your mouth and destroy the works of your hands? God doesn't wink at false worship, at empty promises, at vain words spoken in his name. He doesn't let it go by weakly and, and lightly. His wrath and his curse descend on all who make promises out of turn. Everybody who takes his name on their lips without thinking. And in the end, we're all included. All our empty words prove us foolish. And all our broken promises convict us as guilty. Maybe it's better, as, as verse 5 tells us, not to make commitments to the Lord at all. Maybe it's better to use a New Testament uh, example or a, a New Testament image, not to reach out our hand and put it to the plow for fear that we might be tempted to look back. And again, maybe there's a better way. Every week, Sunday after Sunday, our church gathers here to hear God's word preached and then to see God's word promised. That's not unintentional. We see that happen at the table of the Lord. The Westminster Confession of Faith, our, our Confession of Faith, says that the sacrament of the Lord's Supper is to be observed in the church to the end of the world. It's given to us to be a remembrance of Christ's sacrifice of himself in his death. It goes on to say that one of the purposes of the table is to engage true believers in and to all the duties which they owe unto him. That means that this table is a table of promise. It's a table where we vow, where at least in a small way, it's a table of our commitment where we vow to walk with the Lord in obedience and in faith until that day that he comes to make good on all of his promises for us. His covenant commitments to forgive us and to renew us and to take us to himself in spotless, unblemished holiness. And so when we come to the table week after week, we come remembering that the table is set before us because we need it. We come remembering that we are the promise breakers that Ecclesiastes 5 is warning us about. That's why we keep proclaiming the death of Christ until he comes, because the basis of our worship is not what we can offer to the Lord, but the offering he has made in his Son and his death for sinners. And so when we draw near to the table, we draw near to listen. We come to hear again that God is the great promise keeper. And he's the one who sent his son to bear our sins and to save us from judgment. The confession puts it this way. 
It says that because of Christ's death for sinners, the table is a bond and a pledge. That's promise language. The table is a bond and a pledge of our communion with Jesus and with each other as members of his mystical body. It's God's promise to us to make us his. There's a lot more that we could say. (laughs) But God is in heaven and we are on earth and far better just to let our words be few, far better to draw near to the table and to listen together to the promises that the Lord is making. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of worship. Let's come together to the table and worship the Lord and hear his promises for us again. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, our God, we thank you for the promises that you make to your people in Jesus Christ. We thank you that he is the one, O Lord, who was given up, who was not held back, but given over as a sacrifice for sinners. And we thank you that as we come to you through him in faith, you give us the gift of life and forgiveness and renewal and regeneration. Oh, Lord, you take all of our broken promises and you return to us the promises that you keep in the name of your Son. We come confessing that we're not worthy. And so we come praying that you would humble us under your word, that you would make us not see so much about who we are and what we've done, but see more about who you are and what you do for us. Make us hearers and listeners, O Lord, we pray at your table. In Jesus' name, amen.